welcome to another episode of this in-depth Lord of the Rings character guide podcast, Not Another Fucking Elf, hosted by Lord of the Rings nerd Paul Ridd. Hello. And me, Catherine Bray, also a Lord of the Rings nerd. Let's do a quick recap. What is this podcast and why? Well, we wanted to talk about Lord of the Rings because it's the greatest work of literature of all time, of course, and we decided a character-by-character, episode-by-episode approach would be an interesting way of slicing it all up. So each and every single episode, we'll be looking at a different character from Lord of the Rings with clips from their different portrayals and adaptations, and we'll have a think about their place in wider pop culture. And do you want to talk about the reason the podcast is called Not Another Fucking Elf? Yes, to be clear, we love elves. This is just a reference to what Professor J.R.R. Tolkien's friend Hugo Dyson, maybe less than a fan of elves, said when he heard a bit of J.R.R.'s writing read out at their writing and drinking group, The Inklings. Sometimes people quote this as having been said by C.S. Lewis, but it was in fact sassy old Hugo Dyson. (laughs) So, today's episode stars Bilbo, one of the most famous characters in Lord of the Rings, and of course a character that actually predates Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that will be the case with a few characters, of course, but where that happens, we're going to focus predominantly on their appearance in Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. And before we get into all that, I guess we should say that plot details from the Lord of the Rings, from The Hobbit, Silmarillion, all the associated works, those are obviously all fair game here. So this is your spoiler warning. If you're trying to avoid spoilers for any of these ancient works, turn off this podcast now. Yeah, I'm guessing that anybody who's been tempted by the idea of a character-by-character podcast series about Lord of the Rings hosted by some random Lord of the Rings fans that they don't know, uh, probably knows Lord of the Rings quite well. Yeah, I hope so. Um, But if not, that's amazing. You're an amazing person. I hope it's not too baffling. Maybe it'll be fun for you anyway. Who can say? But if you love Lord of the Rings, but you're hazy on some of the details, or you've seen the Jackson films but not read the books, that's absolutely fine. We're going to do recaps of all the most important plot points for the character we're looking at in each given week. So shall we do exactly that for old Bilbo? Yes, let's recap Bilbo Baggins, Hobbit of the Shire. So, who is Bilbo? Bilbo Baggins is the star of The Hobbit, uh, which was a smash hit children's book Tolkien wrote in the 1930s. And it was so successful that Tolkien's publishers demanded that he write a sequel, which he did. He certainly did. The Lord of the Rings, I guess, is like one of the great examples of the sequel surpassing the original. It starts in this similar kind of mode to The Hobbit for that reason, with Bilbo Baggins celebrating his 111th birthday in the Shire and preparing to you know, pass on all his worldly possessions to his heir, Frodo, who's one of his younger cousins, although they call each other uncle and nephew for some reason. And one of those possessions is a magic ring he picked up on his adventures in The Hobbit, which in The Hobbit is portrayed as a kind of fun trinket, very useful for hiding from giant spiders or dragons, but not necessarily much more than that. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't until he kind of sat down to write The Lord of the Rings that Tolkien decided to effectively retcon the ring into something more important and dangerous. Yeah, and that kickstarts the whole plot of The Lord of the Rings. Bilbo's really too old to be the hero of that story, so it's his heir Frodo who takes the ring on the journey to Mordor. Yes, and I guess Tolkien also wanted that continuity with saying, and Bilbo lived happily to the end of his days yeah. in The Hobbit, like without any more big adventures. Um, so from Bilbo's point of view, this is just the story of what happens when you pass on your most precious belongings to you know, your most beloved relative, and then you go and just chill out in Rivendell, just yeah. retire. Yeah, it's ideal. 
Um, but then years later, they come back and tell you that they've done this sort of epic bit of decluttering and gotten rid of them. <laughs> yeah, it's almost it's almost like this joke in the narrative that Bilbo is so much getting on by the end of the Lord of the Rings. He's so old that he's kind of, kind of forgotten what the whole quest was all about. And that's tied into the power of the ring itself as well, right? The ring gives Bilbo his unnaturally long period of relative youthfulness. Um, so once they get rid of it, he ages more normally and is very frail by the end of the whole saga. Yeah, exactly. Um, but it is his status as a former ring bearer that allows him to eventually take that ship into the West yeah. with the elves and we all melt down crying every time we watch the film. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So alongside Frodo, he's a bit of an outlier amongst the Hobbits. Yeah, and we do get this sort of loose sense of him as a hero, even though he doesn't actually do very much heroic stuff in Lord of the Rings. There are all these little allusions to all of his adventures in The Hobbit. And you can see this high regard in which he's held by people like Gandalf and Elrond. Which kind of contrasts his legacy with the regular hobbits of the Shire, who we mostly see him as this kind of rich, eccentric madman, right? Yeah, mad baggins who yeah. used to disappear with a bang and a flash and return laden with jewels and treasure. Yeah. So that's Bilbo very briefly, sort of in a nutshell. So let's get into it in a bit more depth. Who is Bilbo Baggins as a person, or as a hobbit, rather? So when we meet him in The Lord of the Rings, he's very much this eccentric bachelor. As I just said, he's got this reputation locally for being kind of a madman, certainly in contrast to the more sedate suburban mm. hobbits. And hobbits in general, they tend to be what Tolkien calls clannish. They have these massive families. Mm. They live in these large rambling hobbit holes with all of their relatives hanging about the place and so Bilbo's really unusual in that he's a bachelor and lives on his own until he invites Frodo to come and live with him. He's also extraordinarily wealthy as well right in terms of the wealth that he's accumulated from the adventures in The Hobbit. Yeah um, and he was always well to do but I think it's that sense of someone who was upper middle class in The Hobbit. Um, mm. The Baggins are very respectable, He's he had a toque on his mother's side who are a Hobbit clan who is more known for going on adventures, but the Took side doesn't make itself felt until the events of The Hobbit and he goes off on this big quest and acquires all of this. Not ill-gotten, but the, there's this idea among the local Hobbits that the, his They believe it's sort of stacked is, into the house, right? Yeah, and it's almost like a bit suspicious, like where did he get it from? And in a way that's sort of legitimate because Bilbo himself, like, he's very generous with his money, partly because he says that the money that came from the trolls, he didn't feel it was really his since it came from robbers. Mm. And then if you go back to just briefly touching on The Hobbit, it, he's sort of presented uh, as a much younger man who is sort of analogous to where Frodo is at the beginning of the story of, of Lord of the Rings, right? There is a sort of mirroring there, but although I guess it's they're slightly different characters. Yeah, I would say Bilbo is a little bit more of a comedy character when he sets out on his adventure. There's all that stuff about, you know, losing his brass buttons mm. on the at the door in the Misty Mountains and running out without a handkerchief. Mm. I think Frodo is slightly less pooterish. Yeah. Uh, Frodo is almost a bit more of a, an adventurous kind of hero from, from the get-go, which he needs to be because he's in this much grander scale of adventure. He needs to be truly exceptional because he's saving the world, whereas 
Bilbo is enlisted as a burglar by 13 dwarves who yeah, wants yeah, to go yeah, and get yeah. some treasure. It's exactly. like a different scale of adventure. Yeah. yeah. And then I suppose beyond uh, uh, Bilbo's encounter with the ring and the way that it sort of is consuming him, it hasn't had quite as drastic an effect on him as it has had on Gollum and how it will affect uh, Frodo, right? They're slightly different. They're on a sort of sliding scale of how influenced by the ring they are in the various points of the story where they come into contact with it. Yeah, so there's this important point about how Bilbo begins his ownership of the ring with pity when he he has the advantage of Gollum, he's invisible, he's got the ring on and he needs to escape from the Misty Mountains and Gollum is crouched there in the entryway and Bilbo has this thought of, you know, I could just stab him and walk out, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't stab the vile creature when he had the chance. He begins his ownership of the ring with this act of mercy and he actually just jumps over Gollum. And because of that, uh, Gandalf theorises that that is why he takes so little hurt from his long possession of the ring because it started in this quite benevolent way which is a real contrast obviously to Gollum who starts his possession of the ring with, murder, a, with yeah. a murder yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah and then just talk sort of broadly in a in a kind of bigger sense of who Bilbo is in the in the in the wider sort of Hobbit and Lord of the Rings lore there's the sense of him of being a kind of elder who re- records everything right I was obsessed with translating um, Elvish writing who does his own writing who does his own poetry writing and writes songs so he's quite a sort of literary figure isn't he yeah totally I think there's a little bit of a self-portrait there as well I mean Tolkien said that of all the characters in Lord of the Rings one that he really identified with was Faramir but I think he's also very much reflected in Bilbo that idea of someone who reads poetry that his friends kind of humour him yeah. and you maybe dread hearing read out certainly at his own birthday party there's a passage in the book itself actually maybe we should maybe we should hear from that because it's a nice little moment of, of Bilbo's character as seen by his fellow hobbits mm. all the 144 guests expected a pleasant feast though they rather dreaded the after dinner speech of their host an inevitable item He was liable to drag in bits of what he called poetry, and sometimes, after a glass or two, would allude to the absurd adventures of his mysterious journey. The guests were not disappointed. They had a very pleasant feast, in fact an engrossing entertainment, rich, abundant, varied and prolonged. The purchase of provisions fell almost to nothing throughout the district in the ensuing weeks, but as Bilbo's catering had depleted the stocks of most of the stores, cellars and warehouses for miles around, that did not matter much. After the feast, more or less, came the speech. Most of the company were, however, now in a tolerant mood at that delightful stage which they called filling up the corners. They were sipping their favourite drinks and nibbling at their favourite dainties and their fears were forgotten. They were prepared to listen to anything and to cheer at every full stop. (laughs) (laughs) I can completely imagine that Tolkien was kind of alluding to his own presence at, you know, groups like the Inklings. Yeah, it's just a nice bit of self-satire, isn't it? You know, the idea that you have to kind of embed people with a sort of layer of food and drink before you (laughs) regale them with your endless speeches. Yeah, and the idea of maybe a Hugo Dyson type guy in the audience (laughs) heckling you and going, not more poetry, not another fucking elf. Exactly. We've touched on this already, but I think Frodo as the idea of a sort of 
Bilbo 2.0, Bilbo slightly less suburban, Bilbo slightly less comic, slightly Mm -hmm. more heroic. And it makes sense because he's not he's not his son. He's one of dozens and dozens of younger relatives, but he's the one that Bilbo really connects with. He's the one that um, he's chosen out of presumably multiple options, I think, because he likes the qualities that he sees in Frodo although I think there's a line in there about sort of you know little did he know how important his choice of air would prove yeah yeah so it's not a, a, a decisive moment necessarily out of out of choice yeah like he could have picked Pippin yeah <laughs> Pippin's related to Frodo therefore for, Pippin is related to Bilbo yeah. and then what would have happened yeah, a very different story <laughs> he'd have put the ring on the first time they encountered yeah, yeah. a ring race <laughs> the end yeah Just to sort of touch on how things change between the different texts, um, Bilbo isn't a substantially different character between The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, right? He doesn't sort of morph in quite the same way that other characters do with with it being a shift from a kind of more childish-like story to a more adult. Yeah, I think he's recognisably the same Bilbo as he is at the end of The Hobbit. Obviously, the events of The Hobbit change him substantially. But I think, yeah, there's this continuity between how he finishes the quest of Erebor and how we and when we pick up with him, obviously older, but obviously recognisably the same guy who, you know, chatted with a dragon, rescued the dwarves, was in the Battle of Five Armies. Like that guy, he's the same mischievous guy who's planning a party and intending to shock all his relatives by disappearing uh, magically in the middle of it all, which is a really... Dumbo move yeah. once we know everything that we know about the ring, but I guess it just seemed like a, a good prank yeah. at the time just before they spectacle. before they knew. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's got a special affiliation, I guess, because of his adventures, but he has a special affini- affiliation with peoples outside of the Shire as well, like his his real love of elves and their love of him and his relationship with Aragorn and all of those things. He's he's very much sitting outside even at the beginning of the story of a kind of conventional idea of what a hobbit is or what they represent, right? Yeah, hobbits are very insular, very, you know, anti-outsiders. They would be very anti-immigration. That's very much the typical hobbit stance. Whereas Bilbo is the guy who interacts with other cultures. He went on a long journey with the dwarves, so he's a big friend to them. His name is held in high honour by the dwarves of the Lonely Mountain. Gandalf respects Bilbo from childhood onwards mm. they've had a really nice relationship and the elves too in Rivendell like he's so beloved by them that they agree for him to live with them and then eventually take a boat into the west with them yeah it's yeah so he's he's really culturally connected outside of his own kind of humble suburban roots yeah and like by contrast to the hobbits the elves are well up for listening to all of his songs <laughs> When Frodo and his pals arrive in Riverdale, there's a whole extended sequence where Bilbo is regaling everyone alongside Aragorn, singing songs to the elves, and he seems to be a sort of exotic character for them. Oddly, doesn't seem to make it into most of the main screen adaptations. <laughs> we don't get like the long Bilbo regaling the elves with a song moment. No. Um, much to the disappointment, I'm sure, of actors like Ian Holm. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure. So yeah, one of the key things about Bilbo is that until Frodo comes along with his pals and has his adventure in the Lord of the Rings is that he's just this exceptional 
Hobbit very different to the rest of the people that he grew up with. This is something that actually came up when they were trying to pull together the blurb for the UK paperback edition of The Hobbit and they had somebody write the blurb and it seems from Tolkien's letters, we don't have a copy I don't think anywhere of the proposed blurb, but it seems from his letters that somebody had the idea of writing a blurb that was very much kind of like, are you a hobbit? Do you love adventure? Do you want to go on a quest? <laughs> kind of business. So we then get this very salty letter from the professor to his publisher explaining why that doesn't work. I'm gonna read that now. Mm bit of fun from the collected letters collated by Humphrey Carpenter. I wrote in haste on the proposed blurb for Unwin Books. I do not wish to hurt the feelings of a writer who obviously meant well by me and the book, but I hope you will agree, if you have time to consider it, that this will not do. Apart from its unfortunate style, it misrepresents the story and the way in which it is presented. Unless you wish to defeat the magic, you should never, and he's capped up never, talk like this within the covers of a marvellous tale. The Hobbit saga is presented as vera historia at great pains which have proven very effective. In that frame the question are you a hobbit can only be answered no or yes according to one's birth. Nobody is a hobbit because he likes quiet life and abundant food, still less because he has a latent desire for adventure. Hobbits were a breed of which their chief physical mark was their stature and the chief characteristic of their temper was the almost total eradication of any dormant spark. Only about one per mill had any trace of it. Bilbo was specially selected by the authority and insight of Gandalf as abnormal. He had a good share of hobbit virtues, shrewd sense, generosity, patience and fortitude, and also a strong spark, yet unkindled. The story and its sequel are not about types or the cure of bourgeois smugness by wider experience but about the achievements of specially graced and gifted individuals. It's a particularly forceful way of getting his point across, I guess. Characteristically spicy. Yeah. So that's Book Bilbo. Book Bilbo. Let's talk about other mediums Bilbo, right? Let's yeah. talk about yeah. things in a chronological way, the different adaptations that exist across screen and radio. Including one that doesn't exist anymore. Yes, indeed. So the 1955 BBC radio adaptation, which unfortunately doesn't exist in any form that we could appraise, um, but which we know that J.R.R. was not happy about. Uh, it was a 12-part radio adaptation of the whole book cycle. But in that adaptation, we do know that he was played by an actor. Bilbo was played by an actor called Felix Felton in that adaptation. Luckily, or unluckily, depending on your perspective, <laughs> the 1977 Rankin-Bass version of The Hobbit is very much available for us to have a listen to. We've included this even though it is an adaptation of The Hobbit um, rather than The Lord of the Rings. And we're not going to do a, an extensive deep dive into different versions of Bilbo from all of the different versions of The Hobbit that's available. But we thought we'd make an exception for this one because it's the earliest yes. that we've got. And it's also an instance of a actor playing uh, Bilbo across two separate adaptations. So Orson Bean, who voices Bilbo in that Hobbit film, goes on to voice Bilbo in the 1980 uh, Rankin-Bass Return of the King film. So maybe we can jump back to him when we get on to that. Um, just love his name, Orson Bean. Orson yeah. Bean, that is a just miraculous. Obviously, it makes you think of Orson Welles, but it also makes you think of Mr Bean. Yeah, a sort of perfect marriage of the two. A gorgeous Venn diagram. Yeah. 
You see, Gollum thought I knew the way out and was trying to head me off. I merely followed him to the exit. We had to fight our way through the Goblin Guard. How is it they didn't see you? Oh, well, the art of burgling is really, you know, the art of being unobtrusive. <laughs> Invisible, so to speak. Your story, Bilbo, has the ring of truth. Yes, it rings true. You need say no more. We'd best get a move on. There are still goblins about. Oh, bother. More mountains? Yeah, so that's Orson Bean. What you're missing out, lacking the visuals, is the way they've styled Bilbo to look like a sort of... Um, uh, well, he looks like J.S. Bach. There's no way around it, really. The hair, the hair <laughs> formation, the little waistcoat, the little jacket, it just doesn't work. It just looks like a... a, a, a Iconic composer. I think it's like fine for what the 1977 Hobbit is. It's, yeah. You know, he's got that sort of slightly, oh, I say, kind yes. of vibe to him that's consonant with how he's presented in The Hobbit. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. Then I suppose the next thing is to talk about the Ralph Bakshi animation of Lord of the Rings from 1978. Tragic, unfinished. Um, think I'm fairly dunked on in, in some quarters. I rather like the Bakshi version. Some of it's weird looking and doesn't work, mm. but there's also some amazing sequences. Mm. I would say Bilbo probably belongs to some of the less fully... Less effective. Less effective elements. elements. <laughs> He's played by this actor, Norman Bird, who uh, was an English character actor. Very, very prolific. Uh, appeared in a lot of films. Um, in sort of bit parts in films like Whistle of Down the Wind from 1961. Victim, which is a very significant piece of um, 60s uh, cinema about uh, gay identity and the closet. The Hill with Sean Connery, which is a really, really fab, very underseen Sidney Lumet film about a, a kind of sadistic trial for soldiers in the desert who were um, forced to run up a hill in the Heat, in the heat of the sun all day long um, but he plays a minor sort of character he kind of specialises in a sort of slightly toff character <laughs> minor um, toffs minor toffs <laughs> um, and plus lots of lots of UK TV appearances and shows like All Creatures Great and Small and Zed Cars and The Saint so yeah he's just sort of standard British character actor who did a lot of telly did a lot of movies sounds like exactly who you would get for Bilbo your ideal Bilbo yeah the Bakshi version yeah let's have a listen to a bit of his work we've got a clip from bilbo's party speech so bilbo about to play his great joke and vanish in front of the assembled crew you can't see in the obviously in this podcast but this is one of those shots that is said to have heavily influenced jackson's film version of the lord of the rings the business with the proud foot so it's all mm. framed up very similarly mm. and feels like a nice little tribute from jackson to this scene i don't know half of you half as well as i should like and i like less than half of you half as well as you deserve <laughs> well frodo i can see your uncle bilbo hasn't changed much and though 111 years is far too short a time to live amongst such admirable bagginses and buffinses, grubs, chubs, brace girdles, good bodies, bulges, horn blowers, and proud foots. Foul feet. <laughs> I regret to announce that this is the end. I'm going away. I'm leaving. 
Now, goodbye. And off he goes, boom, vanished. Yeah. So yeah, it's fine, I think, from Norman Bird. It's not um, wildly distinctive or anything, but it does the job. Yeah, exactly. One year later... The Mind's Eye radio adaptation from the US. Um, <laughs> we love the Mind's Eye. It sits in an unfortunate position being a radio adaptation that predates the wonderful BBC radio version, um, which we all know and love. Um, and the big thing that characterises it is a lot of American character actors often really leaning into their American accents, which is kind of quite an off-putting effect. In this version, Bilbo is played by an actor called Ray Reinhardt, who's most famous apparently for being in Star Trek Next Generation. Um, but he also had lots of bit parts in many, many films across decades. His most recent appearance was in the film Jexy. Uh, playing what old man it's a sort of social media satire about a really psychotic phone oh no played by rose byrne or the voice is played by rose byrne oh well i like her maybe um, well. i don't think the film is very good but mm. um i'm sure ray reinhardt in his role of old man in that film really brought it but um <laughs> yeah it's a he's very much an american character actor appearing in tons and tons of sitcoms and cop shows and dramas yeah let's have a listen to ray reinhardt's version of bilbo in this scene and this shirt of mail and the belt here take them from me i should look well i don't think i should look right in it <laughs> just what i said myself but never mind about looks you see it's as supple almost as linen cold as ice but harder than steel i have a fancy it would turn even the knives of the ring wraiths you must share this secret with me I'll put it on you. Now don't tell anyone else. There. Just a plain hobbit you look. Good luck to you. There you are. Hobbits must stick together, and especially Bagginses. Remember, I should like to write a second book if I'm spared. Oh, Bilbo. Dear Bilbo, I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen in summers that have been. But all the while I sit and think of times there were before. I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. of Satie in that scene, um, the gymnopody music which you'll all be sort of familiar with because it's probably one of the most famous pieces of sort of romantic classical music. Yeah, um, what is it used in? I feel like there's tons of examples. Oh yeah, no I mean it's used in Gaspar Noé's film Love, um, <laughs> it's used perhaps most famously in um, My Dinner with Andre, it's the sort of music that bookends that film and I sort of very much associate that theme with the sort of melancholy of that film but here to suddenly have an injection of French romantic classical music is very odd. Bananas. I mean, I guess my dinner with Andre, my dinner with Bilbo, there's a sort mm. of vibe there, but 
Andre yes. has a kind of Bilbo vibe, actually, in the fact <laughs> that he's sort of initially presented as quite normal and then gradually becomes more and more eccentric as the dinner goes on. So maybe there is a... Maybe that's what they were thinking of. I'm sure that's what they were going for. <laughs> Except I think my dinner with Andre is actually after the uh, My Inside Dramatization. It's the other so way around. Maybe, yeah, Louis the... Mal was just like, yeah, that's what I need is that Bilbo vibe. <laughs> yeah, he just listened to the Mind's Eye adaptation of Lord of the Rings and thought, this is really what I want for my dinner yeah. with Andre. I need this. this sense. He'd never heard the music before. He's like, no, get me the not. music from <laughs> the Mind's Eye Lord of the Rings adaptation. It's just very strange to be listening to something where you don't, you have embedded musical landscape that's very conventional, you know, radio work, just punctuating all the emotional beats, doing an epic sort of quest thing sonically, and then to suddenly hear something so familiar slap bang in the middle of that is just very strange. It's absolutely wild to me that they went with that bit of music. Do you think it was a budget thing? Because this was such a low budget adaptation. Yeah. They possibly wanted something where they could just use a bit of classical music yeah, just and throw feel it like in there. they didn't need to pay for it. I don't know. Anyway. If there's anybody associated with the Mind's Eye adaptation from 1979 who wants to get in touch and explain, that would be great. Yes, please explain that music choice. We would love to know. Yeah. Um, and I love I, the Mind's Eye, like, it's not a good adaptation, but or it's always a, a delight to me to listen to it and hear what choices they made. Because yeah. choices were made. Yes. Um, and then the next thing we should discuss before we get onto that beautiful BBC radio version that we all know and love um, is the Rankin-Bass Return of the King film in which um, Orson Bean returns again, the King returns, to voice Bilbo. Very, very much disliked film, generally, I'd yes, say. for some reason. Who can say <laughs> why? Is it the mad animation that makes everybody look like classical composers or manga characters? The American voices. I don't know. I mean, it's it's a rich bounty of different possible fuck-ups for Lord <laughs> of the Rings fans. Generally, within the fandom, people don't want the voices to be American for whatever mm. reason. Maybe that's anti-American prejudice. <laughs> Maybe it isn't. And, yeah, the way that they look like anime characters... I don't know. I could see an anime version of The Lord of the Rings. Obviously, Studio Ghibli have done adaptations of things like uh, Ursula Le Guin, Tales mm. of Mercy. Mm. But it's just a bit weird to mix so many different styles visually and so many different tones and voices. It's the mishmash, I think, that makes it such a potent concoction yeah. of peculiarities. But without judging, let's hear a bit of Orson Bean playing Bilbo in one of the late scenes from that film in which he's reunited with Frodo and the rest of the gang. Yes, yeah, so sitting around a table, we've got Merry, Pippin, Elrond, Gandalf, Bilbo, Frodo and Sam. And Bilbo doesn't really seem to know where he is. But why destroy a thing of such wondrous magic? It was an evil thing, sir. Nay. Without its powers, I could never have faced the worm, Smog. You unwittingly used its evil forces for good, dear uncle. Your innocence protected you. But had you continued to wear it, instead of keeping it above your mantle as a trophy, its ever-growing malignancy would have consumed you, as it almost consumed Samwise and me, and the whole of Middle-earth. But. This is all so confusing. So confusing. Will he never cut the cake? Patience, Mary, patience. 
<laughs> Me for a good smoke while we wait. What say, Master? Good notion, Sam. Bless my soul. Frodo, you are missing a finger. You not only lost my ring, you lost the finger on which it rode? Frodo, you must explain. We have brought with us someone who has written a ballad about the adventures of Frodo, the minstrel of Gondor. Frodo of the nine fingers and the ring of doom. It's a choice. I mean, the visual, again, we come back to sort of a visual reference point, which I hope our listeners will go away and look at, which is to... We can put this on our socials. Let's put all the clips yeah. out there on our social media. So yeah. go and follow us at Not Another Elf, and you can you can see what we're talking about with some of these, these scenes. Um, but he does look kind of like an owl. Mm-hmm. Crossed with J.S. Bark again. Yes, sort of Bark Owl. Yeah. But yeah, poor old Orson Bean. I mean, you've got a quite sort of respected character actor who appeared in loads of quite important films in the 60s, 70s and revived his career later on, or at least you know continued to appear in great movies later on. You know, he's in everything from Anatomy of a Murder in a small role to being John Malkovich and most recently The Equalizer 2. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just strange for poor old Orson Bean to be associated uh, with such a sort of I'd say one of the worst aspects of any of the sort of versions of Lord of the Rings that we've seen, the characterisation. Did you go so far as to say that? What, that this Bilbo is one of the worst bits, bits of, of any, any version of Lord Tolkien of the Rings? nonsense. Yes. Uh, it's excluding some of the fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> Just of... choices were made visually and sonically around the portrayal of Bilbo in this film. And the script. There's yeah. just some real choices some in the script. Some howlers. Some howlers. I think arguably Pippin and Merry in the Rankin Bass are both worse than Bilbo, but then mm. they get more screen time to be terrible. Mm. One of the persistent errors throughout the Rankin Bass Return of the King is whenever a character should say no, they've decided to make it more like, I don't know, medieval or whatever by having them say nay. And I think Tolkien actually uses nay relatively sparsely. Um, yeah. it's, and it's always with particular characters who speak in that kind of mode. So Aragorn might say, nay, lady, you know, don't, don't do such and such. But to have Merry and Pippin saying it sounds really weird. Yeah, you'd associate that kind of uh, anachronistic, or that sort of old, oldie worldy language with the more high fantasy elements rather than the hobbits. Yeah, it's that kind of high romantic heroism that I associate more with probably human characters, so sort of Aragorn, mm. Theoden, kingly kind of business. Mm. So it's also, yeah, I guess an aristocratic mode of speech that just sounds completely wrong when it's a hobbit talking about a birthday cake or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, we should also mention the fact that Orson Bean, on top of being a respected character actor, um, was quite the raconteur and uh, clocked in hundreds of appearances on chat shows and game shows in the US as well. He was a regular on the Johnny Carson show, um, apparently just famously very good at telling stories. Oh, um, well, we should try and drop a little bit of that in. Shall we have a clip? Yeah, let's have a clip. 
I was on The Tonight Show over 200 times, 100 of them as substitute host, and uh, just under 100 as Johnny Carson's guest. So I think my favorite moment was when I almost put Johnny Carson under the table. Uh, there was a discussion of uh, with the panel about uh, leaving organs after you're dead. Leave your eyes, leave your kidneys. And I said to him, I intend to leave myself intact to a needy necrophiliac. Well, Johnny Carson almost fell out of his chair. No one in the studio audience knew what necrophiliac meant, so there was no laughs except from Johnny. Memories. Memories of being on Johnny Carson. It's not what I expected from the guy who plays Bilbo. No, uh, no. But it's also kind of a, a lost type of uh, of kind of showbiz personality, right, as well, isn't it? The sort of... The ancient raconteur. I guess now it's like influencers have maybe taken up that space of who should we get on? We've got, you know, we've got like Brad Pitt. We've got our big star on the sofa. We also need someone else... To some bloke <laughs> bounce off them so you would have these old school kind of raconteur type guys people from the after dinner speech circuit yeah um i don't want to sound like i'm some grumpy person in plus fours writing spluttering letters to the telegraph but maybe that was more interesting than influencers yeah yeah I can't stand influencers no no unless any influencers would like to promote this podcast on there Instagram channels, in which yeah, case, we love you. We love you. Please influence up a storm and make people listen to this podcast like in your yes. awful, awful. awful part of culture. So next up, we have the, the one and only 1981 BBC radio adaptation um, in which Bilbo is voiced by John Lemaitre. Luckily, the BBC saved this one, so we do yeah. have access to Thank it. Thank goodness, man. Jesus. But yeah, John Lemaitre. Yeah, a fantastic, fantastic comic actor, so most famous for um, being the sort of one of the main characters in Dad's Army. Yeah, the elegant public schoolboy who in Dad's Army has to play second fiddle to the bank manager. So a sort of fun inversion of their class dynamic. And I love the performance he gives in Dad's Army. It's just this sort of world weary, elegant, very wry. I think you can see a bit of a bit of it in later performances like Rowan Atkinson in Blackadder, this idea mm. of someone who is incredibly bright but isn't in the position of power, so has to kind of settle for riot sides and thwarted ambition, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, mm. And he brings some of that elegance to Bilbo, I think. It's it's an... It's full of pathos, isn't it? Though? Yeah, yeah. And likeable as well, I think. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful voice as well, isn't it? Such a beautiful voice, yeah. <laughs> One of the great pleasures of that version is just seeing all of these, or hearing rather, all of these old school um, British actors just delivering, absolutely bringing it with their sort of plummy um, RP accents. Um, but wider than Dad's Army and, and obviously in, in Lord of the Rings, uh, Le Mesure was sort of famous for being incredibly, incredibly prolific appearing over 120 films, typically in sort of bit parts. He'd started his career as a stage actor, a very, very respected stage actor who worked with, you know, people like John Gilgood, um, but also was just a sort of general thespian figure, much beloved by the British public because of the sitcoms and also respected stage actor. Massive booze hound as well, apparently. That's oh, what really? killed him in the end. He liked it on one. Yeah, mm. real, real um, sort of legendary drinker. Um, R.I.P. Yeah. Shall we have a listen to his Bilbo? Let's do it. I think we've got a scene where, and it's an interesting scene, it's the famously in the Jackson films where Bilbo kind of like 
goes mad and almost attacks Frodo. Uh, it's played a little bit more subtly here. Have you got it here with you? I can't help feeling curious, you know. After all I've heard, I should very much like to peep at it again. Yes, I've got it. It, it looks just the same as ever it did. But I, I should just like to see it for a moment. Oh, very well. Here. Let me hold it. Just for a moment. No. But it's mine. I found it. Give it to me. No, Bill. My, my birthday present. Thief, 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 thief. We've lost it. My, my precious. It's gone. 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 Bilbo. Bilbo. I understand now. Put it away. I'm sorry. Sorry you have to come in for this burden. I'm sorry about everything. Don't adventures ever have an end? I suppose not. Someone else always has to carry on the story. But don't let's worry about it now. Let's have some real news. Tell me, tell me all about the Shire. <sighs> well, it's so difficult to know where to begin. And so Frodo might sound familiar if you're a big fan of the Jackson films. Of course, Ian Holm there, who plays Frodo in the adaptation, took on the role of uh, Bilbo later on. There's a nice symmetry there between um, playing Frodo in your younger life and then playing Bilbo later on. Yeah, it's a really lovely thread. I, I love that Jackson did that. I mean, it feels right for the role. Mm. Next up, we have the 1990 Rob Inglis audiobook of the whole of Lord of the Rings, um, where Inglis's rich voice tends to... I mean, what's the kind way of putting it? There's not a huge amount of variation between the different characterizations. It's more like listening to someone read you a bedtime story than it is a hugely characterful piece of work in terms of the different characterization. Would you say that's fair to say? I think that's fair. I think they were quite up against it for time. I think he recorded the whole thing in about six weeks or something like that. Mm -hmm. And actually, I think you can hear at the start of the book, he's taking it a bit more slowly. You get a little bit more variation. And then as you move through Return of the King, it's like, right, we've just got to fucking record this yeah. thing. Let's get it done. <laughs> and obviously Bilbo as a character who appears at the very beginning of the narrative benefits from that. I think he's put, he puts a bit more effort into Bilbo than some of the later characters. Mm. Probably they just had a bit more time as well, which obviously is helpful for any voice actor. Mm. There's a nice kind of world-weary quality to the delivery of the character. And maybe that sort of just sits best because English has that older voice that is kind of quite just melancholic in a way yeah it's certainly easier for him to achieve an effective bilbo i think than i don't know eowyn mm. or can't think of any other late stage characters yeah faramir, faramir. <laughs> every item of news from the shire that frodo could tell aided and corrected now and again by sam was of the greatest interest to him from the felling of the least tree to the pranks of the smallest child in hobbiton they were so deep in the doings of the four farthings that they did not notice the arrival of a man clad in dark green cloth. For many minutes he stood looking down at them with a smile. Suddenly Bilbo looked up. Ah, oh, there you are at last, Donadan, he cried. Strider, said Frodo, you seem to have a lot of names. So a lovely illustration of something else that I think you have to lose if you're adapting Lord of the Rings for screen in the style that 
someone like Peter Jackson was doing where you're compressing it and trying to make everything fit into just three films. If you were doing a version where you wanted it to be 60 hours long, you could get into the fact that Bilbo is big mates with Aragorn. Yeah, it'd be lovely. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, Vigo and Ian Holm hanging out, that would have been nice. Yeah, having a session. We keep mentioning the Peter Jackson films. Obviously, they are incredibly iconic and it's probably now time to talk about Ian Holm's work there. Yeah, Ian Holm, uh, aside from his brilliant work playing Frodo in the BBC radio adaptation from 1981, um, is, or was rather, a really, really iconic British actor, really, really important figure in um, in American cinema, in British TV as well. Um, he played, uh, perhaps some of his most famous roles are things like his character Alien, um, his role in The Sweet Hereafter, the Atom of Goyen film. Um, a really, really, um, a really, an actor who was capable of so many different types of performances, so many different kinds of films. Um, just an all-rounder, really, playing like a evil robot or a slightly sort of world-weary detective character figure, not rather detective, a sort of insurance guy. Um, yeah, I think Alien would have been the first time I was probably aware of the work of Ian Holm. His work as Ash, the the robot that dies in a kind of milky flume of, <laughs> of robot, yeah. <laughs> robot interior fluid. Yeah. I can't, you know, what is it? I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. Yeah. Fantastic final line. Yeah. Really great death scene. But he's a, yeah, he's just a wonderful actor and his appearance as Bilbo is, um, you know, just... He's one of these actors who, as with so many of the characters, or as with so many of the actors in Jackson's films, really makes the whole character his own. Right? Like when I think of Bilbo, I mentally think of of Ian Holm in that role, partly because of the style and the visual look of him. It is so distinctive, like him as a sort of um, um, the definition of a hobbit in the early scenes of the first film, but also just because there's so much pathos to that performance. And something I only really noticed because normally I would be either listening to the BBC version or um, watching like the Jackson version. But when we were thinking about this episode and thinking about what clips to include, I only really noticed for the first time that Holmes does a nice little kind of tribute, I think, to John Le Bizurier's performance as Bilbo. Like you can hear it in some of the line deliveries where yes. they've got the same line. They, he gives it a similar cadence, similar patterning. And of course, why not? It's the guy that he played opposite against when Holm was playing Frodo back mm. in the day. So I think that's a really lovely little legacy piece too. Mm. And he does a really nice job as well, I think, of modulating his performance through at least three distinct phases. So I think we're going to have a listen to something from the what I would say the first phase now which is from a flashback in the prologue where we see Bilbo as he is during The Hobbit so in his 50s uh, finding the ring it's just a brief little clip um, but Holm I think does a great job it was picked up by the most unlikely creature imaginable what's this? a hobbit Bilbo Baggins of the Shire a ring <laughs> So that's Bilbo finding the ring and Holm then has to jump forwards in time to elderly Bilbo preparing for his 111th birthday. But it's elderly Bilbo 
as preserved by the ring. The ring yeah. has given this him this unnatural vigor, this this sort of hardly aged a day kind of business. He's demonstrating built by the raconteur for a different or it's not for the elves at Rivendell, it's for a bunch of kids at a party in a totally invented scene that I think Fran Welsh and Philippa Boyens kind of concocted out of nowhere but it feels absolutely of a piece with the character. There are multiple references in the book to him talking about his old adventures so fair play to writing yep. a scene where he's actually doing that. So there I was, the mercy of three monstrous trolls and they were all arguing amongst themselves about how they were going to cook us, whether it be turned on a spit or whether they should sit on us one by one, squash us into jelly. Oh, they spent so much time arguing that weather twos and the y fours that the sun's first light crept over the top of the trees and turned them all to stone. And it's one of those overworked pieces of Lord of the Rings trivia that that's Peter Jackson's kids, did you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah we know. We know Aragorn broke his foot as well. Yeah. Well, we'll go over that in the Aragorn episode, I'm, I'm sure. Sure, we will. Finally, there's Andy Serkis's audiobook from 2020, um, which is a big counterpoint to the English version in that Serkis, by contrast, completely throws himself into finding different voices and different um, registers for the different characters. I think he um, had as long as he wanted. I yeah. feel they, they pro it feels like a properly resourced, beautifully produced, um, wonderfully acted by Serkis audiobook. Mm. Um, if you were going to, I think if you were going to introduce someone to Lord of the Rings and they felt like the book was maybe a bit intimidating, um, it's, that would be a really good place to start. Yeah. Even maybe more so than the Jackson films, cause it's obviously complete. Mm -hmm. So you have that sort of idea of the whole thing before you watch the slightly more condensed version. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's just such a lovely reading really as you say goes for it yeah. um he doesn't do like a big mad bilbo though no the bilbo is relatively restrained yeah yeah he's saving up his keeping his powder dry for later characters <laughs> <laughs> for bombadil and... yeah. so here we're hearing him read uh bilbo in a scene i can't remember what bit we so we've got a lovely bit here that I think really showcases Gandalf and Bilbo's friendship. It's just after Gandalf has in no uncertain terms told Bilbo to leave the ring behind and he's kind of coming down from the scary Gandalf moment and I think it just shows their friendship really nicely. Let's play the clip. Let's play the clip. Bilbo drew his hand over his eyes. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, he said. But I... I felt so queer, I, yet it would be a relief in a way not to be bothered with it anymore. It has been so growing on my mind lately. Sometimes I have felt it was like an eye looking at me and I am always wanting to put it on and disappear, don't you know? Or, or wondering if it is safe and pulling it out to make sure. I tried locking it up, but I found I couldn't rest without it in my pocket. I, I don't know why. And I don't seem able to make up my mind. Then trust mine, said Gandalf. It is quite made up. Go away and leave it behind. Stop possessing it. Give it to Frodo and I will look after him. 
Lovely work from Circus there. Yeah, yeah. It's just go, go and buy this audiobook, people. Yeah. This is just this podcast exists solely as a promotional tool for the for the audiobook version read by Andy Circus. It's deep spunk on. Yeah. Harper Collins are actually paying us to make ten hours exactly. plus of Lord of the Rings content as long as we smuggle in a reference to buying the Harper Collins twenty twenty audiobook somewhere in there. Exactly, can't deny it. So that's uh, Bilbo in his various kind of media appearances. <laughs> media star Bilbo Baggins. What would you say is the sort of defining thing? What would you, if you had to sort of pick something that is the defining characteristic of this character or their impact on the story and the wider sort of cultural phenomenon? We've touched on Bilbo's importance as the keeper of records. Um, I think that's interesting within Lord of the Rings, this idea that he is the guy who wrote up The Hobbit and he sort of makes a start on The Lord of the Rings, but then Frodo takes it over and writes up most of it. Um, I think that's really nice and his translations from the Elvish, all of that stuff. But I guess that ties into that wider idea of him as someone who was able to make friends outside of his own narrow purview. So I, I really like that about Bilbo, that idea that he is the person who builds bridges with the dwarven kingdom hundreds of miles away, um, with the elves sort of slightly closer to home, but um, obviously culturally very alien from Bilbo himself. And that also, I think, ties back to something much more personal that I re also really like about him, is, which is the idea that actually Bilbo is this childless person who never marries or has a romantic partner, and yet is just as beloved as any kind of grandfather of dozens. I think that's quite a nice thing in fiction. I think most older characters who are portrayed in fiction who you know never married and never had any kids probably particularly for women but a bit with men as well like that it would be that idea of like the lonely old crank whereas yeah. Bilbo is portrayed as completely surrounded by people who love him and he gives me a very warm feeling Bilbo because he's not like Frodo who goes through all of this kind of torment and pain and he's not like Samwise who gets wifed up at the end he's like a really positive outcome for a kind of child-free adventurer. Yeah and someone who's uh, kind of fame, notoriety and general popularity or sort of fascination in, in the wider community only grows with age as well, right? Like the idea that we first meet him at the beginning of Lord of the Rings when he's the absolute centre of attention for everyone as this man who lives alone but still is like respected and, and kind of feared or not feared or like greeted with suspicion mm. but not in a sort of like who's that weird old man who lives in a house under the, under the hill <laughs> way but more in a just a this is a cosmopolitan man of the world. And there's a bit in the Council of Elrond that I'd like to read from as well that I think sort of shows quite neatly his place in all of this. So the Council of Elrond it's a gathering representing all of the different peoples of Middle-earth. It's filled with the heir of Isildur and people who are related to royalty and all of these kind of high and noble and mighty folk. And Bilbo is there in his capacity as a former ring-bearer. So here's this section. Very well, very well, Master Elrond, said Bilbo suddenly. Say no more. It is plain enough what you are pointing at. Bilbo the silly hobbit started this affair, and Bilbo had better finish it, or himself. I was very comfortable here and getting on with my book. If you want to know, I am just writing an ending for it. I thought of putting, and he lived happily ever afterwards to the end of his days. It is a good ending, and none the worse for having been used before. Now I shall have to alter that. 
it does not look like coming true. And anyway, there will evidently have to be several more chapters if I live to write them. It is a frightful nuisance. When ought I to start? Boromir looked in surprise at Bilbo, but the laughter died on his lips when he saw that all the others regarded the old hobbit with grave respect. Only Gloin smiled, but his smile came from old memories. Of course, my dear Bilbo, said Gandalf, if you had really started this affair, you might be expected to finish it, but you know well enough now that starting is too great a claim for any, and that only a small part is played in great deeds by any hero. You need not bow. Though the word was meant, and we do not doubt that under jest you are making a valiant offer, but one beyond your strength, Bilbo, you cannot take this thing back. It has passed on. If you need my advice any longer, I should say that your part is ended, unless as a recorder. Finish your book and leave the ending unaltered. There is still hope for it, but get ready to write a sequel when they come back. It's lovely. I think the idea that Boromir is there kind of ready to laugh yeah, because he's the one guy who doesn't really know who Bilbo is, but everyone else respects this offer, this idea mm. that Bilbo will take the ring back and go on the quest. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's, it comes from kind of deep, deep... Uh, sort of meaning doesn't it, it doesn't come it's, it isn't just like who's this silly old cunt who's going to say that he'll do this is really like it's felt and it condenses these ideas of um bilbo as firstly someone who is respected by all of these different people from different cultures and as he references himself it's the idea of bilbo the recorder of the events from the hobbit's perspective which is also really key to the character. So I think it's, it's a nice sort of summing up, really, of a classic Bilbo moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, I suppose also there's something about a character who makes a very, very big impression, uh, both in the prequel but also in the opening of this story, who will then kind of continue to appear, you know, in Fellowship and then disappear from the narrative and, and come back right at the end of the story. That gives his his character a great deal of kind of meaning, right? Like in terms of it kind of also being a kind of like a sandwich between... Yeah, and there's this nice thread of constant references back to like what they're going to tell Bilbo about their adventures. They're, they're always sort of saying, oh, you know, Bilbo will love to hear about this. Yeah. Or when Gandalf um, temporarily checks out in Moria they're worried about how to break the news to him. And it mm. keeps him really present in the narrative in the way that I think in real life, people who are dear to us, but we're not immediately around, we do reference them all the time. Mm. And it's something that fiction sometimes forgets to do, that mm. idea of the person who is absent, but very much in our thoughts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like a sort of structuring absence, right? Like a, a, a figure who is, uh, you know, exerting a great deal of... Um, Kind of influence but that's kind of in common with a few of the other characters as well isn't it like think of Gollum who's not you know a character who appears in a lot of the story but has such a huge impact on things um yeah Bilbo and Gollum are parallels I think it's the idea of someone who starts their ownership of the ring with malice and someone who starts the, their ownership of the ring with pity but fundamentally they're both hobbits mm -hmm. or a hobbit-like creature Gandalf says actually they both understood each other much more than you would expect like a hobbit and an orc to do and that's what sets Gandalf initially on that path of like maybe you know where did Gollum come from maybe he was a hobbit which Frodo is actually disgusted by like, I can't believe that loathsome Gollum creature mm. could possibly have started out as a hobbit how awful 
and Gandalf has to say, well, like, you know, there's, there's ways in which he and Bilbo were similar. Mm. But also, I mean, on a fundamental level, we've talked about this, but if there's an analogous character for Tolkien in the story, and it is this figure who has had a huge amount of experience, but is also fascinated by documenting it all and mm. documenting other people's stories, that singles him out within the overall story as a whole as well, doesn't it? Like, that seems to me to be um, sort of like metatextual in a way that a lot of the other characters aren't, I suppose. Yeah, I love these metatextual moments. And they're not just confined to Bilbo. Like, you do have those moments where Sam is talking about, about you writing know, and tell me about the story of Frodo and the ring. And Frodo is saying, oh, you know, why didn't they put more of Sam in? I like Sam. He's what makes me laugh. But it is a particularly Hobbit-like trait. And that definitely ties to how the Hobbits are defined throughout as these... Um, people who are really into records and family trees and you know having everything set down fair and square and books full of things they already knew like <laughs> which is yeah very very hobbit like and not that the other cultures are not interested in records and songs and documenting their adventures but I suppose because we're seeing it largely through the eyes of the hobbits it feels sort of sharper and more present with them but also there's a nice symmetry as well, isn't there? The idea of a character who, when we first meet them at the beginning of this story, is, you know, ostensibly at the end of their life or to get, heading towards the end of the final stages of their life and is very, very concerned with writing down their experience and putting an end to things and, and, and finally sort of finishing things off. Um, for that to be the thing that sort of bookends this story itself, which will involve a whole lot of stuff that doesn't have to do with death and doesn't have to do with endings, um, that has to do with renewals and beginnings and subversions of death in the form of Sauron or whatever, or like defeating evil and defeating um, sort of nihilism. Um, it's, it's sort of, it's nice, isn't it, to have that character be in some way emblematic of this overall story about kind of, facing death but also subverting it through documentation through recording it and living on after but i also just i'm so fascinated by this idea of somebody trying to reckon with their own legacy or reckon with the end of their days and, and what they're going to do in the final years of their life and 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 record everything and and kind of put it down to paper and all that stuff um that's a sort of much more complex way of facing death, I think, weirdly, mm. than all of the stuff that's just going to happen in this great narrative of good versus evil. Or, you know, obviously we we can talk at, at great length, I'm sure, um, about the sort of moral ambiguity and the texture of this story. But I do think a single individual who is reckoning with their legacy is so much more, adds so much more complexity and depth to that dynamic, right? Like mm, in a way. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. Um, so final thoughts on Bilbo? I think we should maybe leave people with a final infamous bit of pop culture, which we haven't discussed yet, but uh, Leonard Nimoy's... Oh, yes. Leonard yes. Nimoy's famous Bilbo Baggins moment um, is maybe a nice way to play out our section on Bilbo before we come to our final feature of the podcast which is a game called the page off exactly so stay exactly. tuned for that but first this is leonard nimoy inexplicably doing a pop song about bilbo baggins in the middle of the earth in the land of shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe 
fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Now hobbits are peace-loving folks, you know. They're never in a hurry and they take Slow. They don't like to travel away from home They just like to eat and be left alone But one day Bilbo was asked to go On a big adventure to the caves below To help some dwarves get back their gold That was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Old Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins Only three feet tall Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins Bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. It is really funny to think of this. Slightly fusty old professor, J.R.R. Tolkien, writing in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and then this book just massively taking off in the 60s with the hippies as an expression of support for the natural world and against industry and the power of love over, uh, I mean, things like um, nuclear war. The ring was seen as analogous to the power of the bomb. And so, yeah, then you end up with these these cultural artifacts feel like they make absolutely no sense in the context of the Peter Jackson version of the trilogy which is a whole other uh, 2000s way of looking at it all but yeah I quite like the hippie version of Lord of the Rings that's funny too. Should we play the page off? Let's play the page off. So now it's time for our weekly game. Our legendary weekly game. It's called the page off. And this is a highly competitive game that you can also play along at home. Any copy of the Lord of the Rings will do, and any online Lord of the Rings random quote generator. What you've got to do is you've got to generate a quote. We're using a random quote generator from Happy Cow. And the object of the game is to look at the quote and work out where it sits within the Lord of the Rings overarching novel. We will then score points based on how far away from the actual page we landed. If you get it spot on, you score zero, and the aim is to score as few points as possible. And we'll be keeping a running total across the series. Okay, so loading up the random quote generator. Shall I read it out? You read that out, yeah. But I am the real Strider, fortunately. I am Aragorn, son of Arathorn. And if by life or death I can save you, I will. Bloody hell. Lovely. So it's Fellowship, and it's uh, Aragorn revealing his true nature to the hobbits. I think I remember guessing 165 last week, and that landing me in the Strider chapter. Right. So I think if I guess somewhere around 165... <laughs> you are giving me a little bit of a head start here. <laughs> I'm going to repeat a guess. I'm going to guess page 165. And just to spice it up a little bit, I'm going to go 172. 
Oh la la, spicy. Okay, let's have a look. All right, so page 172 kicks off the chapter A Knife in the Dark. So they have met up with Strider, mm -hmm. but the chapter actually opens back in Crick Hollow with Fatty Bulger being stalked by Black Riders. So I'm afraid you've not you've not hit the bullseye, but I don't think you're I don't think you're like too far out. Let's have a look at what 165 165 does. Have you hit a bullseye? I think I'm close. So Strider is defending his name from the aspersions of Barlim and Butterbur that he's like a no good rotten ranger. And Strider is saying like rude stuff. He's saying, who would you take up with? A fat innkeeper who only remembers his name because people shout it at him all day? It's not the exact right page, but let's find out which the right page is. Okay, so page 168. Oof. Amazing, so I score three, you score four. And if we add those on to our running totals, I am now on 168 points. Paul is now on 259 points. So in this game where the aim is to score as low as possible, I'm still in the lead, Paul. Still winning. There's, everything can change though in the coming weeks. Well, it really can, because what I like about this game is that if you do, you know, like if you think a Bilbo line from the very end of the book is from the beginning of the book, you have the potential to wipe out your score by about 900 or something in one go. All to play for. Thank you for listening to Not Another Fucking Elf, a Lord of the Rings character guide podcast by me, Catherine Bray. And me, Paul Ridd. We are a self-produced podcast, so please follow us at Not Another Elf on all good social media platforms. And it would be great if you could give us not one, not three, not seven, but five stars for mortal podcasts on your podcast app. Thanks to Tommaso Alietti for handling our digital bits and bobs, Charlie Shackleton for our cover art, and anyone else who helped us out along the way. Much appreciated. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders, and we strongly urge you to go out and buy the 1978 Ralph Bakshi Lord of the Rings, the 1979 Mind's Eye radio adaptation, the 1980 Rankin Bass Return of the King, the 1981 BBC Radio Lord of the Rings, 2001 New Line Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings, and the 1990 Rob Inglis and 2020 Andy Serkis Lord of the Rings audiobooks, both from HarperCollins. And buy the book! There are so many nice editions of the book out there. We also recommend the Humphrey Carpenter biography as a starting point if you're curious about the life of the man himself, and the Collected Letters, also collated by Humphrey Carpenter with Christopher Tolkien. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss next week when, much to the disappointment of Hugo Dyson, were he alive to hear it, we're looking at a certain elvish character. That's your clue for next week. This has been Catherine Bray. And I'm Paul Ridd. And that's it for now. That's the end of the podcast. We can see white shores and beyond a far green country under the swift sunrise. 